again. All right, so how many of y'all know about Cinnabon cinnamon rolls? Anyone? All right, so have y'all been to a mall with a Cinnabon? A Cinnabon? All right, so I personally don't walk around craving cinnamon rolls in my daily life. I like them, they're good, right? I don't crave them. Walk through a mall with a Cinnabon cinnamon roll store. And all of a sudden, you're craving cinnamon rolls, right? There's something about smells. There's something about fragrances that produce hunger, that produce craving. And so the question is this. Do our lives have the kind of smell, the kind of fragrance that creates a hunger for Jesus? That creates a craving that when our lips utter a message about the beauty of Jesus, it resonates with them. There's a hunger for them that's been created by the distinction, by the difference of how we live our lives. Our lives and our lips can have a gospel fragrance. A Cinnabon filling up a mall kind of fragrance that creates a hunger for Jesus. By the way, that last song is really important. Because nothing but the blood of Jesus can give us that. If it's like, man, I, man, I've really got to live up to a standard now if my life is going to be what creates hunger for Jesus. If you look at your life like I look at my life, I'm like, there is no way. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. How can my life create a hunger for Jesus? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, Jesus is so beautiful. He is so glorious. He is so wonderful. He is a, sa a Savior that is so great that our words fail to tell how great He is. Would you give us lives that show a little bit of that? Would you wash us so deeply in the blood of Jesus that the fragrance of our life is the fragrance of Jesus? Would you wash us so deeply by your grace, your amazing, rich, beyond our comprehension grace that our lives give the fragrance of Jesus off? And would you work so deeply in our lives that the message of Jesus, the beauty of his cross, is something that comes out of our mouths and comes out of our lips. And it does it naturally because that's what we love. Start with me, Father. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're working our way to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. And... <clears throat> He had opened up the book with his opening praise to God. And his opening praise to God was to praise him, to thank him for who he is in the middle of Paul's afflictions. That you're my father. I can know you as father in my afflictions. That you're the father of the Lord Jesus, whom you afflicted to rescue me and adopt me. And that you're the father of mercies. That you're the source of every act of help and every act of comfort for every situation I'm going to face. And every affliction and every slander and every suffering I'm going to face. And so he opened up with a praise that you comfort me with these truths. And then you allow me to comfort others with these truths. And you're so gracious that you're willing to afflict me so that I don't rely on me. But I rely on you, the God who raises the dead. So that's like this opening praise that sets the tenor of the letter. 
And then there's this, you know, the big section we've gone over the past couple of weeks where there have been charges against Paul's integrity and there's been charges against the way he does his life and there's been insinuations made about him. And he defends his integrity, not by saying, I have it, in part, but by saying, here's who God is. God's the faithful one. God's given us this message and this message of the gospel that you've believed is the faithful message. And if you can believe us for this faithful message, then you can believe us for this little question marks that you have. So he's walked through his defense and then uh, he's also found that there has been this group that has left him, but then has repented and returned to him. And one of the ways he knew that is they had disciplined an offender. They had disciplined somebody that had run point on separating the church. But Paul, instead of seeking revenge and saying, you grind him to the dust, says, he's turned back. He's won back to Jesus. Help him back to Jesus now. Help him back to the church now. And then as he's winding up that section and he's bridging to a new section today, he moves from those specific issues to this broader issue. And what the next few chapters is going to deal with is, Paul, who do you think you are writing letters like this to us? What gives you the right to talk to us the way you talk to us? What gives you the right to speak into our church what you're speaking into our church? And he'll answer that over the next couple of chapters. Why does he have boldness? Why does he have apostolic boldness and authority when he speaks to the church? And again, he's not going to appeal to his own greatness in this. He's going to appeal to his theology. Here's who God is. Here's what the message of the cross is. Here's the life we've lived that accentuates the message of the cross that we've brought to you. And that's the transition he's making today. Let's read. Uh, In chapter 2, verse 12. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest in me. Because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and I went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in a triumphal procession. And through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God. Among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, the fragrance from death to death. To other, the fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. So what are we talking about here? As we look at Paul, we're looking at Paul's message and we're also looking at Paul's life. Message and messenger tied together intimately in this text. And so our lives and our lips can emit a gospel fragrance. Our lives and our lips can emit a gospel fragrance. Let's look at the first step. Church conflict always hinders church mission. Church conflict always hinders the church's mission. And I would even personalize that. Personal conflict always hinders personal ministry and mission. Right? There's something about it. And as I was thinking about it, I was like... The heaviest burden that I carry as a pastor, what wears me out as a pastor, it's not meetings and it's not hours and it's not, you know, all the details that have to be taken care of. It's the anxiety. It's the weight of people. Like what's going on in people's lives? It's, are you growing? 
Are you spiritually healthy? It's the weight of sin that starts to trap you and jack up your lives and jack up your relationships that tears at me. Like to feel the weight of, are, are they growing? Are they progressing? To feel the weight of, are they being trapped? Or to feel the weight of, look, oh, they're, they're making such self-destructive choices. Or it's the weight of other people's sins against you. Man, the hurt, the frustration, the burden you guys carry because your work situations or, or, or because your family situations or because your extended family situations or because the, the kind of things that have either happened to you or do happen to you. It's, it's, that's the weight of a pastor that, that, that just, that's the hard part of the job. That's the part that wears you out. And I imagine if you look at your own work situation, it's probably pretty similar. Like what wears you out about your job? It's the wrecking ball that just dropped in the life of your coworker that you care about. Whether it's with their, their, their spouse or something happened with their kids or they're struggling with elderly parents and it's like it just, you know, it just adds the weight of life to your job. Or, or it's in office politics and dynamics and gossip and a very unhealthy work environment. And it, it just wears you out and it makes going to work such a struggle. And it takes the, the job and it takes you off of your purpose at work. And I think the same thing's true here. And that's what we're seeing happen in Paul's life. You see Paul the pastor's heart being torn in half because he's got conflict in the church at Corinth, broken relationships in the church at Corinth, and it's just wearing at him. But then in front of him is the mission of God that he's called to. It's the mission of God he's been sent to. It's the, the gospel has to go forward. The mission of God has to go forward. But there's the people and they're hurting. There's the people and the conflict. There's the people and the relationship struggles. Conflict, mission, conflict, mission, pastor, missionary. What do we do? And again, I think it's probably the same in your life. I hope you want to run after Jesus. I hope you want to grow. I hope you want to engage the people around you. Mission. Interpersonal struggles. Conflict. And the pull of those two things. Both matter. Both are important. And so let's look into the text because you're going to see Paul torn by these two things. And so he goes in and he talks about, or he's bridging here from the issue of charges and defense and responding to this. Uh, and so what had happened, Paul had had the painful visit. He had shown up in Corinth. He was going to deal with the issues. He was going to call them back, not just to himself, but to the faithfulness to the gospel. And this group of people had factioned off, confront Paul, and actually shame him out of town. And so instead of rising up and bowing up, he retreats. And then he writes what's the sorrowful letter or the painful letter. And he gives it to Titus, and he sends Titus to Corinth to deliver this letter. A letter that's confronting issues, a letter that's calling them back to faithfulness, a letter that's calling them back to himself. And so he has sent this, and where we find Paul in the text is waiting to hear what has happened. How did the Corinthians respond to the letter? How did the Corinthians respond to the, respond to the confrontation? Have they still left him, and has he lost them for good? Or have they returned, and, and this church has been reunited with its founding apostle, and things are made well again? What has happened? And that's where we find Paul waiting. To, he doesn't know. And so there we find him, and he says, I went to Troas to preach the gospel. Why is Paul in Troas? The mission of God. So he's on a missionary journey. Troas is a strategic seaport city. It's a key city for the, the region <coughs> that he's in at large. And he shows up at Troas. Why? 
to preach the gospel. Why does Paul exist to preach the gospel? Why has Paul been saved and rescued? He's been sent as an apostle to the Gentiles. And so he shows up in Troas and he's preaching the gospel. And it's having an effect. Do you see that? A door was opened for me in the Lord. What does a door open mean? It means I have access to Troas. They're not running me out and stoning me. Been there, done that. And it's effective. And so a door has been opened for the mission of God that I am born for or reborn for. A door has been opened for the mission of God. This is why I exist. And it's open. Nobody's running me out. And it's effective. People are being saved. The gospel is doing what it's supposed to do. The mission's running ahead. But that's not the end of the story, is it? Look at what Paul says. I went to Traz. I preached the gospel. And even though a door was open for me, even though I had access, even though it was being effective, even though the Lord Jesus himself had given me this access and given me this fruitfulness... My spirit was not at rest in me because my brother Titus hadn't returned. Something had delayed Titus. He was expecting Titus to be back with news for how the letter went. He's expecting Titus to be back with his report, what's happened in Corinth. And it hasn't happened. And so he's preaching the gospel and he's distracted. He's preaching the gospel, but he is worn out by what is going on with Titus. What is going on with the Corinthians? Have we, re, or have we reconciled? Is thing, are things okay yet? Mission, preach. Is everything okay? Mission, preach. But what about Corinth? Missionary, preach. But what about these people I care for and have given my life for? And I want to be reconciled with. And I want them to run after Jesus again. What about them? And his spirit is not at rest in him. He is being torn in half by his purpose, his mission, and his pastoral heart to care for these people and what's going on in their lives and what has sidetracked their following of Jesus and what has broken their relationship with him. And if you have ever served people, you have faced that. If you've ever wanted to run after Jesus, if you've ever wanted to see Jesus formed and grow in your life, if you've ever wanted to see Jesus impact the lives of the people around you, you have had things and people in your life that have grieved you. Oh, why are they making those decisions? Why can't we get our relationship reconciled? Why can't they get their relationship reconciled? Why, why do they have to break each other so badly? And I care so much for them to be restored. I care so much for them to run after Jesus. But, but there's people here I need to serve. And that's exactly what Paul is facing. He's got effective, open access door to the gospel. And people are being saved. And he's got a church that he's broken with. And that is broken internally. And look what he does. My spirit was not at rest within me. Because Titus, my brother, hadn't returned. He's, he's been delayed. I don't, I don't know what's happened yet with him. And because I didn't find my brother Titus there, I took my leave of them and moved to Macedonia. There is no indication the access door had closed. There is no indication whatsoever the effectiveness of the gospel had ceased. There is no indication that the Lord had shut down the door that had been opened up in Troas. There's the indication that he was so distracted and so burdened by the condition of his relationships with these people and the condition of these people's relationships with Jesus that he could not keep going because of the emotional strain of it. He couldn't keep going. Now, there's no indication in the text that this is a sin on Paul's part. So what I would say, it's Paul being a human. Like, it's easy to think of Paul in the Bible world. 
And he's always got the perfect answer and he's always got the perfect theology and he's always got the perfect internal composition and he's always doing the exact right thing and he's never stressed, he's never worried, he never faces the things you face when you go to work every day. But that's not true. This text shows that's not true. The human frailty of concern and worry and anxiety grew so great over the situation in Corinth that he left a place God had opened for the gospel to move over to Macedonia. We don't think it's wrong. There's no indication it's wrong. We think it's human. We think it's frailty that we live with. And so he has gone to Troas. It's a major port city in what would be modern northwest North West Turkey. So he's in modern northwest Turkey across the Mediterranean from Greece. So he's there kind of waiting response or, or he's actually there as part of his missionary journey. But because of this distress, he moves over across the Mediterranean into, into kind of northeastern Greece, which is Macedonia. So he's in the north. Corinth is in the south. He's trying to get closer to try to get connected back with Titus quicker. And so he took leave of them and he left them. Because he had to know what was going on. Conflict always hinders mission. Conflict within your family. Conflict with people you care about. It's always going to hinder the mission. It's always going to pull at your heart and distract you to some level of the purpose of running after Jesus. And the purpose of helping other people run after Jesus. And the same thing happens with churches. Church splits. Church fights. Church conflict. And church mission don't go together. So when we start fighting over the color of the carpet, or we start fighting over, man, we should have this program, or we start fighting over it should be done this way, we're not making disciples. We're not running after Jesus. We're not pointing to Jesus' glory anymore. We're consumed in conflict. And the mission suffers. It doesn't mean it stops, but it suffers. It hinders. It slows the thing down. And the same is true in your life. Conflict and mission war with each other. And with our selfish desire, we've got to be right. We've got to get our way. We want what we want. And there's other people that agree with us. What we forget is there are kids that are watching. And I've talked to them as adults who still live with one of the defining marks that they have experienced in their Christian life is the time their church split and they watched it from afar. But that doesn't matter because I want my way. Right? And the fringe people that are on the outskirts of the church, maybe just coming back to church or maybe coming to the church for the first time in forever or maybe coming back for the first time ever in their lives. And they're the casualties of our conflict because we have to have what we want. Or us running after people outside who need to know Jesus. It's the conflict because we've got to have what we want. Church conflict always hinders the church's mission. And so I would just challenge you as I challenge myself, war, actively war for the things in your own heart that war again, that cause conflict and the things in the relationships you have with people that cause conflict and the things you see happening in the church. Like always war for unity. The cost is too great for us to fight over stuff that doesn't matter. Church conflict hinders church mission. Second step, our gospel life and message will evoke a life of or death response. Our gospel life and message will evoke a life or death response. So I really love the smell of a good perfume or, or cologne. I, I just like, 
I don't have a very good nose. And so like when, when one's strong enough to get past like the allergies and the pollen and all the stuff that goes on in there, I won't go into any details. Like, and it's a good one. Like, I just love that. And I'm going to just help you out a little bit. Okay. I'm going to, I like to just give you all public service announcements from time to time. Your perfume and your cologne come with a spray, right? Spray. Yes. Okay. They measure that on purpose. Spray. One. Spray. One. Uh, maximum of two. All right? If you have different places, you put it two sp- measured spray, measured, done. And since my mom's not here to defend herself, and uh, she would let me talk about her if she were still around like this. And my kids sometimes, like, they don't know the measured one. At most two. And so... You know, a good, decent perfume that they'd have. One, two, three, maybe four. Good measure, five. And that good smelling perfume all of a sudden just chokes you, right? Have you been there? All right, so if you if you do more than the maximum of two, I just want to encourage you to pare back a little bit. One is good. Two's the most. Kind of stop there just that's to help you, okay? And so I want you to think about that in terms of your your Christian life. Our lives are a perfume to the perfect, beautiful, glorious message of the gospel of Jesus. Our lives are this perfume that, that adds beauty and adds clarity and adds desire for this message that we bring. And so our, our lives are meant to be this wonderful, sweet-smelling perfume that blows across people's lives so that when the message of Jesus, Jesus comes out of our lives, like, They've already, they've already begun to desire something about what we have. Like, that's the design. Now, the gospel doesn't change. The gospel is not, uh, is not choked out. The gospel is not less beautiful because of our lives. But people don't have to walk through the, the choking smell to get to it. To put it that way, right? Our lives are meant to be a perfume, the one measured spray perfume to the gospel. And I imagine, and something you can look at in your life, and I have to look at in my life, are there areas where we've exceeded the maximum spray? And what's meant to be a perfume about our lives to the message of Jesus chokes out the ability for people to see Jesus. And instead of preparing the way, preparing the hunger, preparing the appetite for the message of Jesus, our lives choke out, quench, a desire to hear about Jesus. And so what are some of the areas of your life or what are the areas of my life that have taken too many sprays and are no longer accomplishing the purpose of saying, this Jesus is wonderful, this Jesus is glorious. What my life says and my lips say, they're, they're matching up to proclaim Jesus. Now remember the song we sung, Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Because if you're like me, that can, that can lead you to be prone to guilt. And like, man, I've just messed it up. And people's eternities have collapsed because of me. There's a balance in this. There's a grace to this. There's not our religious perfection. It's not the smell of our self-righteousness that's going to get anybody there. There's not the smell of our perfect holiness that looks down on them and 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 judges them and makes them want Jesus because we've been judgmental enough to to tell them that the fragrance is Jesus. 
The fragrance of grace is the fragrance of Jesus. And we want people to have Jesus, not religion. We want people to have Jesus, not just church. We want people to have Jesus, not just good works. We want people to have Jesus, not self-righteousness. And so the cologne of our lives, the perfume of our lives, needs to be the perfume of Jesus, not the perfume of religion and good works and self-righteousness and the other things that we It's the perfume. It's the smell of grace. It's the smell of Jesus that's compelling, that people can't pass up. So let's look at it. Let's dive into the text here. And so Paul is not going to come back to answer the question about Titus until chapter 7. He goes on a you know multi-chapter aside. He's prone to do it. Some of us who speak regularly, we're prone to just take a little trail and we'll get back when we can. But that's what he does here. So we don't hear about Titus and the answer from Titus in the letter until chapter 7. But look what he does. Paul, who do you think you are to tell us all these things? And he's going to answer them. Thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in a triumphal procession. That's the imagery, the ancient imagery of when a king or a general would win a great battle over an area. They would come back home to their city and there would be this massive parade and there'd be this massive celebration and this massive feast. And the general would walk in front or the king would walk in front and behind him would be a trail of captives. The leaders of the country just conquered. The leaders of the army just conquered. The enslaved people that probably are on their way to, to death and they would be, he would have a, a train of captives behind him and that would be his glory. The glory of a conquering general is the, is the evidence, the visible evidence of his victory. The, jo- uh, the glory of a conquering king is to see behind him this massive army that had been conquered by him or this, this massive country with its rulers that are behind him in subservience now. That's the triumphal procession. And so after every great victory, the city would have this huge party and the general would be let out and the captives would be behind him. On their way to the death penalty or on their way to, to prison to be enslaved by him. And that was the image. I'm not saying right or wrong. I'm just saying that's the image. And so I've always taken this passage to mean we're part of the conquering army. And look, go Jesus. Like, you're the king. You won. And we're part of the army. And it's great. But that's not the imagery Paul's saying. That's not the imagery that Paul's pointing at here. You know what Paul's saying? Here's one of the main charges against Paul. You are too weak to have God's favor in your life. You're not, you know, look at our teachers. They're charismatic and they have powerful personalities and they can hold a crowd. You're, you suffer. You got scars. You're, you're just, you can't be favored by God and, and, and be who you are. And so Paul's like, you think that's bad. Let me tell you about you and me. Here we are. We're not the conquering army behind King Jesus looking at the captives. We're the captives. We are the enemies of God who have been conquered by King Jesus, enslaved to King Jesus, on our way to death for King Jesus to point to the glory of Jesus. So you want, you want teachers that are glorious? You want teachers that are powerful? You want teachers that are charismatic? You're looking in the wrong line of work. Jesus conquers people. Jesus has people conquered, enslaved, and on their way to their own death to point to his glory, not theirs. You want teachers that point to their own glory. You want teachers you can glory in. I want Jesus to glory in. And that's what he's saying. We're part of the triumphal procession that says, look at our conquering king. 
Look at the glory of him. Look at the majesty of him. Look at the sovereign power of our king that has conquered us. And then in his grace chooses to conquer us and adopt us. And that's what he's saying. We're part of the triumphal procession of Jesus. We're part of the conquered foes of Jesus who have now been adopted children of Jesus. You want to call me lowly? You're right. I'm a slave on the way to death for the glory of Jesus who conquered me and won me by his death. And he puts to death the glory of ourselves and our success. He puts to death of the glory of our, our ministries or our resources that want to be great and want to look great to everybody. He puts that to death. Why? To focus on the guy riding out front. The guy that won the victory. The guy that conquered us to win us and to set us free. The guy that rescued us from slavery to a new slavery that's an eternal life slavery. Eternal grace. And it's his glory that matters, not ours. He led us in a triumphal procession. And through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. He uses two words for smell in 14 through 16. So in verse 14 and verse 16, he uses the word fragrance. Which is this the general word for smell. It may be a good smell. It may be a great smell. It may be an awful smell. Fragrance. And then in verse 15, he uses the word aroma. And the word aroma always refers to a sweet, pleasing, aromatic smell. It is a smell that is pleasing. It is a smell that is a sweet smell. It's a smell that would be made by the spices and the aromatics of the day. And so that's what he goes through. Let's look at it uh, in the text. We are the aroma of Christ to God. We, the apostles, our ministry, our lifestyles... And our message, all of them are included. Our lives, our ministries, our message are the aroma. And look closely, this matters. We are the aroma of Christ to God. My first concern is not the gospel fragrance that you get from my life. My first concern is not the gospel fragrance that a lost world gets from my life. The first concern I have is not the gospel fragrance the news media has about Christianity. My first concern is the aroma, the smell, the pleasing smell of my gospel life to God. We are the aroma not to the lost world. That's secondary. We're the aroma... Through Christ, because of Christ, that's pleasing to God. And so we are this sweet smelling, we are this pleasing sacrifice, we're this pleasing aroma for God to smell because of the work of Christ in our lives. That's the first concern is, is God pleased with the aroma flowing out of my life by the work of Jesus? Because the rest is very secondary. The rest may always be misunderstood. Is God pleased? Is God pleased? And the the word here, the imagery here has possibly two backgrounds. How many of y'all read Leviticus lately? What? Like nobody's digging around in Leviticus? We tend to neglect that one, right? It is a book that lays out the sacrificial system and lays out the priestly system and lays out the festival system. It's the gospel. Because we have a once and for all sacrifice. We won't go there. 17 times in the book of Leviticus, an offering is described, and it is summarized by saying, a pleasing aroma 
to the Lord. It is the sacrifice offered in worship that reaches up into the nostrils of God and God is pleased with it. God accepts this offering. Another time it's used. You ever heard of a guy named Noah? So Noah goes through the flood. Noah builds an altar. Noah offers an offering of worship. And a pleasing aroma reaches into the nostrils of God. And do you know what God does as a result? He promises to never destroy the earth again with a flood. God wiped humanity out because of the stench of their sin. And one little offering pleasing up into my nostrils. And I'll never do that again. Not that way. Your life, my life, is the sacrifice based on the work of Christ that is pleasing into the nostrils of God. Pleasing offering. And then another imagery of the day that was more current was that idol worship would have processionals and their their priests would have incense burn off and waft into all the crowd. And the aroma represented the presence of God, their God, their idol. And so maybe that's the imagery being used that Our lives, our aroma says God's here. And when you walk into your workplace with a gospel aroma around your life, you're saying God's here. And he is. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who dwells there? Everywhere you go is a sanctuary. Everywhere you go, God's there. And so our lives are these pleasing sacrifices up to God and our lives bring the presence of God with us wherever we go. And for some, it will strike their nostrils differently because look, right? It's the aroma for those who are being saved and those who are perishing, those who are who are going to die and spend eternity in death, who are going to die and spend eternity apart from God, who are going to die and be judged eternally. There are people who are perishing and will spend eternity apart from God. And when this smell hits their nostrils, apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, when this smell hits their nostrils, it's an awful stench to them. A life that is pleasing to God, uh, a life that serves others, a life of humility, a life saturated with grace, a life that says Jesus is present, smells like death and shame and foolishness to their nostrils. It is the smell to those who are perishing and it's from death and it's to death and, and it's a stench in their nostrils. It smells too much like death because they don't know the other part. Because for those who are being saved, this smell is not a stench. It is the heavenly perfume of grace that looks like life. And it looks like resurrection. And it looks like grace. And it looks like salvation. And it looks like adoption. And so for those who are being saved, this is the most precious smell on earth. To smell the gospel. To smell Jesus. It's a pleasing aroma. For those who are being saved. And so two people have the same smell come across their nose. And one, it smells like death and shame. And one, it smells like resurrection. And it smells like life. You worry whether or not your life through Jesus brings an aroma to God that's pleasing. And that aroma filling everywhere you go, some will believe Because your life and your lip and your ministry all say the same thing. But you may have the best life, grace-saturated. You may have the most winsome ministry, 
And you may have the perfect message. And there are people that will hate it. And it will stink to them. Same message, right? The same aroma to God through Jesus. Some it smells like death and some it smells like life. Worthy, worry if God's pleased with the aroma of your life. It is a life and death thing, by the way. You see that? Some will decide death, perishing apart from God forever in judgment. Oh, but some will smell it. And it's life. It's eternal life. It's saving life. Is that heavy to you? To think that your life and your ministry and your message have life and death implications? That's enough to keep me awake at night. Like, if you're, if you're following this passage with me, it's enough to keep you awake at night. Like, I'm a little too frail and a little too weak and a little too lazy sometimes and a little too, you know, fly off the handle or whatever you do for my life to be life and death for other people. Hold that thought till the next point. Let's look at it. Our gospel ministry isn't a job or product, <coughs> but a lifestyle. Our gospel ministry isn't a job or product, but a lifestyle commissioned by God. We've gotten into this really dangerous condition in American Christianity. Church is a product we consume. Do they have the programs I want? Do they have enough stuff for the kids? Is the music the right style of music? Is it not too long? Is it not too short? Can the preacher keep my attention? Do they have things for the women? Do they have things for the men? How's Sunday school? Or no, they should have small groups. No, if they have small groups, they should have Sunday school. Or maybe we should video stream it. And we shop for churches and we hop for churches as a product for us to consume. And then as leaders, well, what should we do? We've got to make sure we have the products people want. We have to make sure that we are offering the kind of religious goods that people are willing to consume. And if we can offer better religious goods than the people down the street, our church can get big and their church can get small. It's such a dangerous mentality to slip from, yes, there are things I would like to see in a church, to churches are things I buy and sell based on whether they're meeting my needs in the moment. It's a dangerous, dangerous place. But then there's this also this very dangerous mentality we slip into. And it's Jesus would only demand of me exactly what I want to give him. Jesus isn't going to ask anything of me I don't want to give. Jesus isn't going to ask more than I'm able to give. Jesus isn't going to make demands on my life. And it's a dangerous mentality that reduces the gospel down to a product and following Jesus down to a, a, a job or worse than that, a hobby that we do on our own terms. And that's what Paul addresses here about himself and about his ministry and I think presses on us as well. Look at this. Here's the relief I'm going to offer you. Who is sufficient for these things? And the answer is nobody, right? But that's the question. I have just told you that your life has eternal implications for everybody around you. I have just told you that the message and the ministry you offer has eternal life and death implications for everybody around you. I've just put that weight on you and I've just put that weight on me. And if you feel the weight of that, this question becomes quite a relief. Who could possibly measure up to that standard? Who's qualified 
Who's sufficient? Who's worthy enough to say, all right, take my life at face value and make your eternal decisions based on it. Take my message and make your eternal decisions based on it. Nobody is sufficient for these things. But what does he say we do instead? We're not like these false teachers who peddle God's word. The word for peddler is simply the word that means to sell a product. Neutral word in and of itself, sell a product. You got a product people want, people come and buy it. That's what a peddler does. But in a marketplace where 10 other people are selling the same things as you, you've got to do what it takes to get the to get them to buy from your store and not another store. So if you've been into other countries, they all have a market of some sort, whether it's a tourist market or actually a local buying market. And you got meat here and you got meat here and you got rice here and you got rice here and you got, you know, artisan wares here. And, and the goal of selling the products means I've got to adjust my product and I've got to adjust my pitch and I've got to manipulate you so that you buy from my store and not their store. Isn't that what we've started to do as churches? I've got to set up the, the product so that you want to buy it. And if, if my target market wants to buy it, and if the target market comes and it works for them, we'll grow. But we're not peddlers of the gospel. The gospel is not a product that we tamper with. The gospel is not a product that we manipulate people with. The gospel is not a product where I can trim off the edges you don't like so that you come promise you that I would love to be able to do that sometimes. Like uh, there are messages I just like, God, can we just skip this? Like would anybody notice if we left chapter one out of the book this week? But it's not a product for you to consume and it's not a product for me to sell. To manipulate you into buying the product of the church for my status, for my power, for our status, for our power, for our numbers. We're not peddling the word of God. God's word is God's self-revelation and it's all good. Paul's like, I don't have any blood on my hands. How do I not have blood on my hands? Because I have not failed to you to declare to you the whole counsel of God. I didn't leave the stuff out that was hard. I didn't leave the stuff out you wouldn't like. I didn't worry about whether you're going to buy the product or not. I gave you life. And because I gave you life, I'm, I'm innocent. My, the blood's off my hands for the life you chose to live in response to it. We don't peddle God's word. And the church does not exist to sell a product. It exists to declare life with humility and life with boldness and life with a spotlight on Jesus and and life about here's who God is and here's what God's like and here's what God's done. And it is beautiful and it is amazing, but it is radically reorienting to the flesh's way of thinking and the flesh's way of operating. But we won't sell the product. We will only give you the straightforward message of life. And I just beg you, don't ever sit under anybody and don't ever sit under me and don't ever sit under any church that is going to sell a gospel product instead of saying, here's who God is. Here's what he's done. It's so much better than what I have to say. For those that this is the aroma of life to life, so much better than what I have to say. We don't peddle God's word, but instead our lives are lives of sincerity. We've talked about this before. It's the third time it's been used. Our lives can be held up to the light, held up to examination, and hold under the scrutiny. Not perfectly, but graciously. Like, you can look at my life, and you're not going to see fundamental cracks. You're going to see a grace-soaked life that holds up to examination. 
And so you've got a message that I won't tamper with. And you've got a life that backs up what I say. And then you've got a commissioning from God. We are commissioned in the sight of God. What gives me the right to say anything to you? I have God's commissioning papers in my hand. He sent me. And so I have the right. I have the authority to say this. His authority. Right? By the way, read the book of John. You have your commissioning papers. As the Father sent me, Jesus says, so send I you. You're sent. You're commissioned. We're all challenged to grow in the sincerity of our life. Does it hold up to scrutiny? And we have a word. And it's a beautiful word. And it's a flawless word. And how does a young man keep his way pure? By keeping heed according to your word. My delight is in the law of the Lord. And in your word I meditate day and night. I have a word that's living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. And it pierces the division of soul and the spirit and the joints and the marrow. Dividing the thoughts and the intents of the heart. We have a word. And it is not a product I want you to buy. It is a life that I want to be planted in you to make you strong. Because it's going to hold when you need it to hold. It's going to hold when you need it. It's going to make Christ form in you. Word, life, commissioning. We all have it. And so a gospel life with a gospel aroma, going out into the world that smells of death, that's the mission. That's what's going to take people from death to life, from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. Not because you're sufficient, but because he's sufficient. A few practical things as we close. I'll just mention them without going into them too much. Fight for unity and wholeness. It starts with you. Do you ever get that sense? I mean, I know you do because you're human. I'm human. Do you ever get that welling up sense of like, I just want to grumble a little bit. And what easier thing to grumble about than church? Like, man, it's already 12.06. That dude's not done yet. And I'm hungry. God, if he would just go a little shorter, things would be much better here. Or that teacher, why are they always chasing rabbit trails? Or that guy over there, he didn't even say hey to me this morning. It's just like the human condition. We grumble, we gossip, we complain. Fight that in your heart. Because it's so easy to justify it, then it's so easy for it to grow, and it's so easy to find company because you're surrounded by a bunch of other humans who have their own set. The fight for unity starts with you and it starts with me. And then it goes out from there, and you're going to have friends that, like, you know, they don't like something. Maybe it's legit, and you need to be like, well, let's go talk to them, or why don't we talk it out? And you need to help them solve a real problem, because, you know, it's not that we avoid talking about real hard things or real issues and dealing with issues, right? That's not how we make peace. It's just that we deal with it the right way with the right people, not as a, you know, a factioning off system, right? So help them do that. Or maybe you're all like, you know, that's just... Same thing I do. I grumble and I shouldn't be grumbling. And you need to just help them. But fight for unity. Fight for wholeness in your life and in the lives of people around you. That's how we war for wholeness in the church. And that's how we war for unity. Not just a truce, but unity within the church. Second thing, our lives emit an aroma or a stench. Like it's either going to be something people have to choke, hold their breath, and walk through to get to Jesus. Or it's going to be something that is so winsome that they're at least open to hearing about Jesus. Or they're rejecting Jesus, not the Jesus they're viewing in you. Like a gospel aroma that is grace-saturated. It's an aroma that we can emit. 
Last one, live sent. We have a word, and it's not a product. We have a word that gives life to dead people. We have a word that brings people from death to life. Don't let yourself fall into trying to sell it to people. Don't let yourself fall into teachers who want to use it in a creative and manipulative way to get you to buy it. Have a word. Go live it out. Go serve and share with two. We do that every week, right? Are there people around you that you are serving and letting the fragrance of Jesus flow over your life into their life and that you're sharing with? If you don't have those, I can challenge you again. Find the two people in your circles that you are meant to be directly, intentionally serving and looking for opportunities to directly, intentionally share with. Live like you're sent because guess what? You're sent. Your life and your lips can emit a gospel fragrance. And that's the kind of world-changing, eternity-shaping fragrance people need. Let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name we bow. Knowing we're not sufficient for these things. And so I pray that not one word would put guilt or condemnation on your people. But that every word would drive us to you for grace. And drive us to you for sufficiency. And drive us to you to be the one who can. That it is through Christ our life can be anything. And so not condemned. Because there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But it would throw us at you for grace. It would throw us after you to be changed more to be like Jesus. Because we want to see the world smell and see Jesus. So Father, we're asking for that in Jesus' name. Amen.